Hello and welcome to the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition podcast. I'm Judy Sondheimer. In this session, we will abstract selected articles from the April 2010 issue. The table of contents for this issue and access to the complete articles are available on the JPGN website, jpgn.org, or on the Society website at naspagan.org. The April issue is headlined by an invited review from Canini and colleagues from the University of Naples, Italy, entitled Congenital Diarrheal Disorders, Improved Understanding of Gene Defects is Leading to Advances in Intestinal Physiology and Clinical Management. Congenital diarrhea is a challenging clinical problem because of the severity of disease and the increasing number of disorders that are now part of the differential diagnosis. Recent studies of the pathophysiology of these conditions have produced a better understanding of congenital as well as more common diarrheal diseases. The authors have reviewed the literature on congenital diarrheas and propose classifying them into four categories, disorders of intestinal absorption and transport, disorders of enterocyte differentiation and polarization, disorders of enteroendocrine differentiation, and disorders of intestinal immunity. The authors review current knowledge of the genetic mutations responsible for these derangements and suggest that clinical application of new molecular genetic techniques may provide for quicker, non-invasive, pre- and postnatal diagnosis and for earlier, more effective therapy. The first original GI article is entitled Biomarkers in Pediatric Eosinophilic Duodenitis, a Case Control, Single-Blind, Observational Pilot Study by Nylon and Associates. The aim of this study was to determine whether screening for food hypersensitivity could be a clinically useful biomarker for eosinophilic duodenitis in children. The authors enrolled 22 patients with functional dyspepsia and 19 controls with no gastrointestinal or allergic disorders. Participants underwent skin prick, atopy patch, and serum-specific IgE, IgG, and IgG4 testing to corn, wheat, soy, peanut, milk, and egg. Participants in the patient group also underwent endoscopy and biopsies. Results. Three of the 22 dyspepsia patients did not exhibit duodenal eosinophilia on biopsy and were excluded. The remaining 19 dyspepsia patients were matched to 17 controls for age and sex. Seven of 19 dyspepsia patients had at least one positive reaction to food by skin prick, atopy patch, or serum-specific IgE testing, as did seven of 19 controls. The odds ratio was one. Receiver operating characteristics curves showed serum-specific IgG and IgG4 performed poorly or no better than chance for predicting group assignment. The authors conclude that allergy screening for the foods tested was not useful as a marker for eosinophilic duodenitis. A higher rate of positive reactions to patch testing was observed in the control group than reported in previous studies. 
The next original GI article is entitled Infiltration of FOXP3 and Toll-like Receptor 4 Positive Cells in the Intestines of Children with Food Allergy by Westerholm Ormeo and colleagues. Since regulatory T-cells and intestinal microflora play a central role in controlling allergic inflammation, the authors examined markers related to regulatory T-cells and bacterial signaling in the duodenal mucosa of patients with food allergy. The authors collected small intestinal samples from patients with food allergy on normal or elimination diets, from healthy controls, and from patients with untreated celiac disease. Single and double immunohistochemistry were used to enumerate the densities of FOXP3 positive cells and toll-like receptor 2 and 4 positive cells in the mucosa to evaluate the colonization of FOXP3 expression in CD4 positive, CD25 positive, and cytotoxic T lymphocyte antigen 4 or CTLA4 positive cells. The mRNA expression of CD25, FOXP3, toll-like receptor 2 and 4 was measured by reverse transcription polymerase chain reaction. Results. The densities of FOXP3 positive and toll-like receptor 4 positive cells were significantly increased in patients with untreated food allergy compared with healthy controls. FOXP3 positive cells were increased in untreated compared to treated food allergy patients. The immense majority of FOXP3 positive cells were CD4 positive cells, median 100%, CTLA4 positive cells, median 100%, or CD25 positive cells, median 81%. The ratio of FOXP3 mRNA to FOX3P positive cells was decreased in patients with food allergy and in patients with untreated celiac disease compared with controls. The authors concluded that FOXP3 positive cells are increased in the duodenum of patients with untreated food allergy, but that these cells are not able to suppress the harmful immune response indicated by the low expression of FOXP3 transcripts. The increase of toll-like receptor 4 positive cells and their correlation with gamma-delta positive intraepithelial lymphocytes suggests a role for the innate immunity and intestinal microbiota in food allergy. The next original GI article is entitled Oral Beclomethazone Dipropionate in Pediatric Active Ulcerative Colitis, a Comparison Trial with Mesalazine by Romano and colleagues. The objective of this study was to evaluate the efficacy of oral beclomethazone dipropionate in inducing clinical and endoscopic remission in children with mild to moderately active ulcerative colitis. The authors enrolled 30 patients with active ulcerative colitis, either pancolitis or left-sided colitis, in an open-label, randomized, head-to-head -head study. 15 patients in group 1 received oral beclomethazone dipropionate, 5 mg per day for 8 weeks, followed by maintenance therapy with oral mesalazine, or 5-ASA. 15 patients in group 2 received oral 5-ASA, 80 mg per kilogram per day. 
Assessments were made at 4, 8, and 12 weeks by clinical score and by endoscopy at 12 weeks. A final clinical assessment was made 12 months after initiation of therapy. Results. 80% of patients treated with oral beclomethasone achieved remission by activity score within four weeks compared with 33% treated with only 5-ASA. By eight weeks, a significant reduction in activity score was achieved by the 5-ASA patients. The mean clinical activity scores of the beclomethasone group were significantly better at 8 and 12 weeks than those of the 5-ASA group. At the 12 weeks colonoscopy, 73% of beclomethasone-treated patients showed remission compared to 27% of 5-ASA-treated patients, although both treatments resulted in significantly improved histologic scores compared with pretreatment values. Erythrocyte sedimentation rate was significantly reduced with both treatments, whereas C-reactive protein dropped significantly only in the beclomethasone group. Conclusions. Oral beclomethasone was well tolerated and acted significantly faster and more effectively than 5-ASA in inducing clinical remission and endoscopic improvement in mild to moderately active ulcerative colitis in children. The last original GI article is entitled Outcome of Percutaneous Endoscopic Gastrostomy in Children and Young Adults by Fortunato and colleagues. Factors predicting outcome after percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy or PEG in large pediatric cohorts are not well defined. The authors hypothesized that definable preoperative clinical factors might predict the need for further intervention to provide enteral access after percutaneous gastrostomy. The aim was to identify factors associated with PEG outcome. The authors reviewed the records of 760 patients who had received percutaneous gastrostomy at the Johns Hopkins Children's Center from 1994 to 2005. Logistic or multiple linear regression was used to analyze indications, diagnosis, age, prematurity, neurologic impairment, weight for age z-scores, modified barium swallow, postoperative complications, need for fundoplication, subsequent gastrojejunal tube or jejunostomy, and length of hospital stay. Results. The median age of the patients was one year, with a range from 0 to 26 years. The most common indications were failure to thrive in 373 and dysphagia in 27. Postoperative fundoplication, gastrojejunal tube, or jejunostomy were performed in 10%, 4%, and 1% of all patients, respectively. Dysphagia in 10% of patients and aspiration on modified barium swallow in 11% were each strongly associated with postoperative fundoplication, with odds ratios of 2.4 and 2.8, respectively. Patients receiving postoperative fundoplication were younger than those without, median age 5.8 versus 14 months. Patients with preoperative dysphagia had a longer median hospital stay, 8 versus 3 days. Patients with neurologic impairment had greater weight gain postoperatively than neurologically normal patients. 
Minor postoperative complications, mostly wound infections, occurred in 4% of patients before hospital discharge and in 20% after discharge. There were two major complications, one gastric separation and one gastrocolon fistula. There were no fatalities. The authors conclude that preoperative diagnosis, indication, prematurity, and neurologic impairment did not influence postoperative complications. The first hepatology article is entitled Serum Markers May Distinguish Biliary Atresia from Other Forms of Neonatal Cholestasis by Wang and colleagues. Non-invasive tests securely distinguishing biliary atresia from other types of neonatal liver disease are not available. Using proteomic techniques, the authors investigated using multiple serum biomarkers in this differential diagnosis. The authors performed screening, two-dimensional difference gel electrophoresis, tandem mass spectrometry, and statistical analysis on serum samples from 19 infants with biliary atresia and 19 infants with non-biliary atresia neonatal cholestasis using a randomly selected set of 28 samples as a training set to identify biomarkers and the remaining 10 samples as a test set to determine whether the classifier algorithm generated could correctly distinguish between biliary atresia and non-biliary atresia liver disease. Results. Of 138 spots with more than 1.2-fold difference between the groups, 47 spots were completely distinct from neighboring peptides. 28 spots were identified and used for classifier generation and testing. 11 potential protein serum biomarkers were found in combination to accurately classify the children with neonatal cholestasis. The authors conclude that although no biochemical test or imaging modality completely distinguishes biliary atresia from other types of neonatal cholestasis, combinations of biomarkers, imaging tests, and non-invasive clinical criteria may have potential as rapid and accurate tests for biliary atresia. The next article is entitled Use of Complementary and Alternative Medicine in Pediatric Chronic Viral Hepatitis, by Ehrlichman, Salam, and Haver. The objectives of this study were to assess the prevalence, frequency, and types of complementary and alternative medicine, or CAM, used by children with chronic viral hepatitis infection, and to determine correlates of use and estimates of non-disclosure regarding CAM use. In this cross-sectional pilot study, Families of 68 children receiving care for chronic viral hepatitis at a tertiary medical center took a survey regarding the use of CAM. 46% of the families reported using CAM for their child at least once since diagnosis, and 31% used CAM monthly or more frequently. Of all the CAM therapies, Biologically-based products, such as herbals and dietary supplements, were most often used. Use of CAM was independently associated with the current or previous use of antiviral medications for viral hepatitis, parents' use of CAM, and child having a non-liver comorbidity. Rates of physician non-disclosure regarding CAM use were 60%.
Conclusions. This is the first report of CAM use in children with chronic viral hepatitis. Use of CAM in this population is common, and despite published adult reports, there is infrequent dialogue between patients and pediatric healthcare providers regarding the use of CAM. The following nutritional original article is entitled Partially Hydrolyzed 100% Whey Protein Infant Formula and Reduced Risk of Atopic Dermatitis, a Meta-Analysis by Alexander and Cabana. The article is accompanied by an editorial by Yvonne Vandenplas. A reduced risk of atopic dermatitis among healthy infants receiving 100% whey protein partially hydrolyzed formula compared to those receiving intact protein cow's milk formula has been reported. The authors conducted a meta-analysis of clinical trials and intervention studies to investigate this suggestion. 18 articles representing 12 independent study populations met the inclusion criteria. Results. A statistically significant 44% reduced risk of atopic manifestations, including atopic dermatitis, was found among infants receiving whey protein partially hydrolyzed formula, compared with infants receiving cow's milk formula. In a sub-analysis of four studies specifically targeting atopic dermatitis, the incidence of atopic dermatitis was reduced by 55% in patients on partially hydrolyzed whey versus cow's milk formula. Conclusions. Regardless of study design, infant population, follow-up time or study location, individual study findings were consistent in showing a reduced incidence of atopic dermatitis in patients fed partially hydrolyzed whey protein formula. The next nutrition article is entitled, A Qualitative Study of the Quality of Life of Children Receiving Intravenous Nutrition at Home by Amedo, Godfrey, and Hill. This article is accompanied by an editorial by Pisacane and Contenicio. The objectives of this study were to evaluate the views of children with severe intestinal failure dependent on IV nutrition throughout childhood. Seven children, ages 7 to 17 years of age, were interviewed. Diagnoses were enteropathy in three, short bowel syndrome in one, complex mucosal inflammation and dysmotility in two, and intestinal pseudoobstruction in one. All children were receiving intravenous nutrition overnight at home. The children were questioned about lifestyle and health. Transcripts were analyzed using interpretive phenomenological analysis. The author's review found that these children coped well with life on intravenous nutrition, apart from episodes of septicemia in two patients, but were troubled when complications of the underlying disease persisted. Children were aware that their lives were restricted. Older children wished to take care of themselves. There was a high level of family functioning. The burdens of life with intravenous nutrition appeared to be less significant for these children than living with chronic illness. There was resilience and acceptance in the face of illness-related demands. Conclusions. This study found that it is possible for children fed intravenously at home to develop a level of resilience, maintain a positive outlook, and cope well with illness-related demands, even when they have had lifelong severe intestinal failure.
The next nutrition article is entitled Fat Malabsorption in Cystic Fibrosis, Comparison of Quantitative Fat Assay and a Novel Assay Using Fecal Lauric Behenic Acid. This is by Dorsey and colleagues. A three-day stool collection is required to quantitatively determine the coefficient of intestinal fat malabsorption. The authors asked whether behenic acid, a non-absorbable lipid, might provide a simple way to assess fat absorption. The study proposed to answer two questions. First, whether the behenate test correlated with the results of a 72-hour fat balance study, and second, whether the coefficient of fat absorption improved when patients took their pancreatic enzymes during meals instead of before meals. The study compared the behenate test with the 72-hour fat balance in 15 patients with cystic fibrosis during three arms that required a three- to four-day hospitalization. First, taking pancreatic enzymes before meals. Second, taking enzymes during meals. And third, without enzymes. Results. The mean coefficient of fat absorption was 78% when pancreatic enzymes were taken during meals and 80.4% when enzymes were taken before meals. Correlation between the coefficient of fat absorption and the behenate test for collections during all three arms was R squared equals 0.219, P equals 0.001. Conclusions. Timing of the ingestion of pancreatic enzymes does not significantly alter the coefficient of fat absorption. Although the coefficient of fat absorption correlates with the behenate test, the correlation is not robust enough to justify replacement of the gold standard by the behenate test. This concludes the podcast of the April issue of JPGN. Other titles in this issue include Association of Gastric Heterotopic Pancreas and Esophageal Atresia, Celiac Disease and Eosinophilic Esophagitis, Validation of a Monoclonal Stool Antigen Test for H. pylori in Young Children, Single Dose dose Azithromycin versus 5-Day Erythromycin, or No Antibiotic in Campylobacter Enterocolitis, and two short communications entitled Outcomes of Catheter-Associated Infection in Patients with Short Bowel Syndrome and Atopy Patch Test for Early Diagnosis of Cow's Milk Allergy in Preterm Infants. Access to all these articles is available on the JPGN website, jpgn.org, or on the Society website at naspghan.org. The editors of JPGN are Eric Sibley and David Bransky. I'm Judy Sondheimer. Thank you.